If you would take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As you're turning there, I, I was thinking, I couldn't help but think this, though it may, may be hard to imagine given the way, you know, the, the nature of life, you know, ha, has changed and just what the last two years have been. But this is the first Easter Sunday since 2019 we've all been together. Uh, because in 2020 we didn't have it, and last year we did two services. So, uh, what a joy it is to be back together in fullness, and so grateful to be able to, to worship together with God's people. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, we'll read the first eight verses. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren of, at once, of whom the greater part remained of the present. Some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James and by all the apostles. Then, last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. Of all of the features of the life and story of Christ, none are probably more controversial, though there are perhaps a number of elements of that story that receive some amount of debate and controversy, but probably none are more controversial and more hard to believe for some people than the resurrection. Uh, this, this, in fact, is a sticking point for a large number of people. I mean, history is full of other examples of leaders who captured the attention of the, the people and, and maybe even garnered their affection and allegiance, leaders who gave a message of hope and maybe even a counter-cultural message coming against the powers that be. We have other examples of those kinds of individuals in human history. And we have examples of those kinds of leaders then paying the price for their influence, even maybe having their lives cut short by the powers that be, by those who are threatened by the popularity and influence of these other leaders. But none of them came back from the dead. Uh, and, and none of those leaders called it ahead of time. Jesus himself even said more than one occasion, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to the authorities, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be crucified, but I'm going to rise again in three days. And certainly, none of those leaders ended up being the heart and soul of a movement as profound and powerful and world-changing as that which was wrought by a group of scared, largely uneducated, lower-class people 
who ended up turning the Roman world upside down. But I would contend this has always been the case. I mean, I think people have always had trouble believing in the resurrection. I don't think this is necessarily some modern notion. I think most people, regardless of time and culture and, you know, historical setting, you know, whatever elements may divide people groups across the world, I think most people are still kind of fundamentally a seeing is believing kind of people, right? We, we still, if we hear something that seems so contrary to the way things normally work, we want some amount of verification for the story. I mean, we recognize that in the first century, though we like to think of ourselves as modern sophisticates, right? And the first century were probably largely ignorant brutes. I mean, I think that's kind of how we tend to look at these folks, but that Surely's not the case. You do know they didn't necessarily have an easier time believing somebody came back from the dead than you do, or the people in the rest of our culture do. You do know that the first century was not full of people coming back from the dead, right? I mean, this wasn't happening. It, it's, though there are a couple of other stories, they're all associated with Jesus, right? But otherwise, it's not like this was a common occurrence. It's not like Peter was sharing the gospel with a neighbor, and that neighbor said, huh, that's a great story. You know what? Same thing happened to my uncle a few years ago. It's not like somebody saying, you know what? My neighbor, Bougie, that, that happened to him, all right? We had a great funeral. It was wasted on him because a few days later, he rose from the dead. This is not the kind of thing that was going on regularly. It was revolutionary in the first century to claim that a man had died and came back from the dead. In fact, just like now, it required some amount of confirmation. So God in His grace provided it. I mean, you think about the Gospels themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, though often people would confuse them for biographies, they are not biographies. There's a lot of information left out, right? In fact, you could probably almost read a gospel between now and the time that I'm done. Some of you are going to take me up on that offer, all right? His word's better than mine. So, if that's the case, so be it. But these gospels are designed for a specific purpose, to confirm the message of eyewitnesses to Christ. All four of them are eyewitness testimonies to these amazing, miraculous, and unbelievable things. So, so the Bible does provide us with confirmation. God, even in that first century, provided confirming elements, truths, aspects of this message that, that, that gave confidence that, yes, this amazing thing really happened. A guy came back from the dead and he's still alive. So this morning we're going to give our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Now, now just, just for sake of context, this is Paul's first letter to a church in Corinth, a church that he was responsible for starting. Paul spent some 18 months in Corinth ministering in this church. 
Uh, Unfortunately, some of that either didn't take, or boy, they ran in the wrong direction. If you read the letter of 1 Corinthians, you will find this is a messed up church. We won't get into all of that, but just suffice it to say, I've never really understood why churches call themselves Corinth Baptist Church. Um, Because if you read this, you think, man, that is not the reputation you want. It's like some churches that are, I've even heard of a Laodicea Baptist church, all right? That's a church Jesus was going to spit out of his mouth. It doesn't seem like just because it's in the Bible, you want to name your church that, all right? Corinth would be one of them because it it is messed up. And we won't talk about all of the messes, but right before this chapter, Paul is laying out what is a really dysfunctional view they have of the gifts of how those gifts would operate. In the middle of this, he blasts them because they don't have real Christ-like love for one another. And so this is kind of the tenor of the book. It is, it is problem after problem after problem until he gets here. And it's not that he's not going to correct some bad theology, but what I find interesting is when we get to chapter 15, it's almost then like Paul is going to end this letter with this resounding note as a reminder to them of what's most fundamental, of of reaffirming for them what is the hope of Christ crucified and resurrected, that when it comes to all of their dysfunction, what they need to come back to is the simple, basic, yet profound hope of Christ crucified and resurrected. And so, 1 Corinthians 15 many recognize as the most extensive teaching in the New Testament about the resurrection. What's interesting about this chapter, which we really won't get into this morning, is the majority of it does not deal with the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, some of it does, what we're going to talk about, but the majority of it deals with the resurrection of believers. In other words, Paul's going to pivot at some point in this where he's affirming the resurrection of the dead uh, in Jesus Christ as then saying, and, and because he was the first fruits, there's another batch coming. There's another harvest on the way. Jesus was just the first, but there will be others who will be raised from the dead. He's talking about us. And so th- these are words, again, I think intended just to reaffirm for these folks in Corinth. These well-trained, sophisticated, wealthy, but stiff-necked people. What really matters? How to get back to the fundamental truth of the gospel. And so, Paul begins an extended teaching on the resurrection by first reaffirming the reality of that resurrection. And so, as we gather here this morning, we can, in full confidence, with full certainty, with, with, with every bit of hope that we can muster, be certain that Jesus Christ is alive. He did die and he rose from the dead. Our salvation is not grounded in some kind of naivete, all right? It's not that we are just simpletons and accept any kind of supernatural idea. It is because this is a real and verifiable set of events. And so Paul does us a real service. He gives us at least three reasons why we can believe this message. Why is this something that we center on? Why do we even have, I mean, we we worship every Sunday in acknowledgement of the resurrection, but then we recognize every year that we give special emphasis to it on Easter Sunday. Why has this been going on 
for century after century after century. What is it about this, this message that encourages and that is affirmed to us? So you don't have notes uh, in your bulletin. You'd have to write it all out. If you want this in all of its form, feel free to email me and I will send it along to you, all right? But there are blanks in the back of your bulletin if you'd write, if you want to write it down. Okay, number one, first truth is that this is a message that has been carefully communicated. It, it, is, it has been treated with the utmost respect The message of Christ crucified and resurrected was not one that was just haphazardly passed along from one group to the next. And it's not a message that, even right from the beginning, it's not a message they wanted to monkey with. It's fascinating. What you find right from the beginning is that they take great care to accurately communicate the message as given. So notice what Paul says here, beginning in verse 1. Chapter 15, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. Now, right off the bat, what do we see here? Paul is not writing to them something they've never heard before, right? This is not new. It's not new to Paul. This is not new to the church. Paul begins by saying, I'm declaring to you something I already preached to you. Again, Paul is writing this letter some years after his initial visit and time spent in Corinth. So again, we're we're talking years in between that initial visit and now the letter being written. And Paul Paul is is beginning this by saying, I'm going to reaffirm a message. I'm going to reassert something they really, quite frankly, I've already reasserted and, in fact, reasserted it some time ago, and now I'm going to give it to you again. He's repeating himself. It's nothing novel, nothing brand new, nothing where Paul comes along and says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you and this new bit of information we've recently discovered. And to let you know, there's now more to the story, right? This is no, and I know this might date me and for sure some of you, there's no Paul Harvey action going on here, all right? It is still the story. It's the same thing. That which I preach to you, and you've, and this is interesting, and you've already received it. Now, we'll come back around to that idea after a while, I find it fascinating that this is what Paul's deciding to do. I'm going to go back and I'm going to reteach something I've taught before, something that I've taught before and you've already believed, but we're going to go over this thing again. That which I have given to you, I've preached it, you've received it. In fact, he then goes on to identify this. That which you stand is what? Verse 2, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So so notice what Paul is worried about here. He's worried about those who perhaps heard his teaching but did not show signs of genuine belief. So, So part of the reason for this reiteration, for coming back and saying again the same thing he's already said before, that they said they already believed, saying, look, this is the gospel in which you stand and it's that by which you are saved. 
Now, I want to make sure that you hold fast to the word that was preached to you because I don't want your belief to be in vain. So we're going to come back around to the gospel again. We're going to make sure you have a firm understanding of the message. But keep on going here for just a minute, and then we'll press this point. Verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. I, I, I know I know what you might be thinking. I don't know what all of you are thinking, but you may hear that and think, all right, here he goes again. He's gonna, he's gonna, so he's going to do what Paul does, all right? This justifies him for repeating himself all the time. So this is what he's going to do. But I do want you to notice the detail. Paul is giving to Corinth what he's already given to them and what they've already believed, which was a message he had already received. Paul did not invent the gospel. In spite of what some modern liberal scholars might want to say, this was not his idea. He didn't make it up. Now, this was a message that he had already received. Now, I want you to put all this in perspective. 1 Corinthians is written sometime in the early to mid-50s A.D. I know we're doing dates on you. Just hold on, all right? There's more Easter candy to come after the service, all right? So just hold, just we'll, we'll get through it and the chocolate and peanut butter's coming. Okay. So when did, the, when did the crucifixion resurrection happen? About 20 years before this. So just think about the ramifications of this. Paul is saying, 20 years later, 20 years later, he's saying, I am passing along to you that which I've already passed along to you and you've already received it, and it's something that I've already received. We are talking about a message that is, he's giving testimony to a message that has been consistently, carefully communicated from day one. In fact, we know what the message is. It comes from the apostles themselves. Luke, I mean, Acts chapter 2, right after the Pentecost uh, uh, set of events, and Peter preaches the message, and we have thousands who believe and are baptized. That then it says of them in chapter 2, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' preaching. It's the first thing they did, devoting themselves to the apostles' preaching. So right off the bat, what are they doing? They are faithfully preaching the gospel. And it's, and it's being carefully communicated all along the way. No one's making this up. No one's getting together and deciding what the gospel will be. No, this, this is something that is clearly rooted in the earliest years of the church, and they consistently preach it. You go back and you read the gospels, you go forward and you read later letters. You read of the history of the church and what you will find is that the gospel message was never altered by these who were empowered and gifted by God to lead and preach and teach in the church. Think about that. 20 years later, no little tidbit of, of you know, nuance offered that there, there, was, there was no expansion of the story going on. Let, let me try and put this like in an illustration. Let's say today you've got some kind of family gathering, right? The, the ham is done, casseroles wiped out, 
you found somewhere to put dessert, all right, and that's, that's all done, and you're sitting around, you're talking about the old days. And you start talking about a story, something that was important to you as a child, and you begin recounting the details, and inevitably what happens? Another sibling or a mom or dad or somebody pops up and says, that's not what happened. It's not right at all. Uh, my oldest brother, who very well could end up watching the service, so I want him to hear this. Uh, he's notorious for this. He loves to tell stories of a time when I couldn't possibly remember, all right? And so it puts you at a disadvantage, right? Um, and and the, the stories get bigger. Isn't this, though, what happens? We think back, and the stories often get bigger. It is also, and this is not an offense to fishermen, but you all know, right? It is the classic the big one that got away tail, right? I mean, the God, it, it, it always gets bigger. The fish goes from here to, you know, Jonah's big fish. It becomes gigantic by the time the story is told. You don't have a whisper of that in the New Testament about a story of a guy who died and rose from the dead. And there's not a bit of it because they recognized this was not their message. Their responsibility was not one of ownership, it was one of stewardship. And so they were careful to carefully articulate the message as it had been given to them. To me, this is an affirmation of the message itself, that this, this was something of such profound weightiness. They took it with such seriousness but they made sure it got from A to B exactly as it was at A. Carefully communicated. Number two, we can believe this message because it was divinely attested. Divinely attested. And when I say that, I, I probably should add just a bit more. So of course, I will because it's preaching. All right. So divinely attested meaning this is a message that comes from God, right? It is a message created by him, planned by him, revealed by him, and then again confirmed and attested to by him. So notice how, how Paul goes on to describe this. Verse 3, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now, you note those three parts of the gospel. Christ died for our sins, was buried and raised from the dead. So let, let's just make sure we hit this and that we get this clear, because, again, on, on Easter Sunday, I know there's visitors, there are folks here who I do not know, and I want to make sure that we have clarity when it comes to the gospel. So let's make this clear. When we talk about the message of salvation, when we talk about the gospel, when Paul says that this was done for the forgiveness of our sins, it is imperative that we recognize we in and of ourselves and according to our own power are unable to save ourselves. I don't know where you are this morning coming into a church, where you stand in relation to Christ and the gospel, but my responsibility as one called of God to preach the gospel is to make it clear that the gospel means I am a sinner separated from God, dead in my trespasses and sin, unable to save myself, but that God in his goodness and grace provided a means by 
which I could be saved. He sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. And his death on the cross was the payment for the penalty of my sin. God poured out his wrath on Jesus for my sin so that those who believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, and confess that they are sinners unable to save themselves, these can be saved. If you've never trusted in Christ, I would implore you to do so, to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If, you're gonna, if you want to know more about what that means, if you want a further discussion about it, when the service is over, pastors will be down front. And we'd love to have an opportunity to even offer further clarity on what that means to believe the gospel. But for the sake of this particular point, I, I want you to note what he says here. Jesus Christ died for our sins, buried, and raised. But there's a phrase that repeats itself. What's that phrase? According to the Scriptures. Isn't that interesting? Now, I just spent a whole point talking about the consistency of the message being preached, right? Begins with Peter at Pentecost. We have the apostles doing it faithfully. Paul has been doing it faithfully now for many, many years. But, but notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say this message according to the preaching of Peter, according to the preaching of John, according to my preaching. It's not their preaching was wrong. It, it wasn't. It was right. This was the message of God. It was the message that, that, that formed the heart of what they would have been, you know, would have been preached to the churches week in and week out. But you'll notice, what's the source of authority? The Scriptures. Paul is saying, not only did we not make this up, and not only is this a message that has been consistently passed down generation after generation since that first generation of believers, but this is something that comes to us straight from the Scriptures. God's already said this. This has all happened because this is what the Bible said. Now, let's take this a step further. Guess what Paul does not have in 52 or 53 AD? The New Testament. At this point, you know what they have? Just the Testament, all right? It would have been the Old Testament. There was no New Testament. It was just the, it was just the Bible. It was just the Old Testament, that's all that they would have had aside from the preaching of the apostles. So isn't it interesting that when Paul wants to offer verification that he tells these folks in Corinth, many of whom are Greek, that in fact the very foundational message of the gospel is rooted in the Old Testament. These are the scriptures. Jesus died. He was buried, he rose from the dead, because this is what the Old Testament teaches. That's a profound way to put this. Because, that, again, that means this is not something new they're cooking up. It's not some, you know, interesting evolution in religious and theological thought. They are simply taking Christ crucified and resurrected and pointing back to the Old Testament and saying, See? That's what it said. They may not have known it way back then, but now that we see, there it is. The Old Testament testifies to all of these things. It is a message that is divinely attested. Now, you may be wondering, well, 
all right, Old Testament, really? I mean, we're, we're new. We're, is, are you sure that this is in fact what they would have been doing? Well, I can point out an example of some people who did this, all right? Jesus, we're familiar with Jesus, right? After his resurrection, walking on the road to Emmaus with two other disciples who do not recognize him. It's a great story, Luke 24. If you haven't had a chance to read some of these, this, this is one of the more ironic because they're walking together on the road. They're sad. They're talking about the events of the weekend. They know the tomb is empty, but they certainly don't believe Jesus is alive. Again, because first century people did not necessarily believe people rose up from the dead. All right? So they did not think that the tomb, you know, they knew the tomb was empty, but they didn't know what was going on. So Jesus sees them and asks them why they're sad. And, and they say, are you the only guy in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on? Which is hilarious, right? I, I mean, I, what I want to know, what all could Jesus have said there? I mean, because it really could have been a profound moment. Uh, because if anybody knew what happened in Jerusalem that day, it was Jesus. But what did Jesus do? Rather than talk about the crucifixion and resurrection events that had just happened over the last few days, the Bible, first Jesus says, you who are slow-witted, hard of heart, unable to understand, this is kind of the language that gets used here. And then it goes on to say that he explained to them, beginning with Moses and the prophets how all of the scriptures were pertaining to him. So if you want an example of how this preaching worked, Jesus did it. This is how Jesus preached. He preached the Old Testament. If you want another example, go to Acts chapter 2 and read Peter's message at Pentecost, especially the part, see, some of us may hear this and think, okay, yeah, Jesus, um, suffering, we get that's in the Old Testament, but resurrection, come on, is that in the Old Testament? Peter seemed to think so because he quotes Psalm 16, where it talks about God not leaving his Holy One to decay in the tomb. Paul, when he's standing before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, he does the same thing Jesus did, preaching the gospel to this man. He then goes to the law and the prophets and explains how all of these things, the death and resurrection of Jesus, are found in the law and the prophets. Again, it just emphasizes to us that this message came to them already attested. Now, we should add to this, of course, we, we have, um, you know, the, the, the amount of, of knowledge we have, it is, it is a wealth of knowledge now, right? Because we do have the New Testament. We, we, have, we have the fullness of this explained to us beyond the Old Testament, giving us then the beauty and the splendor of the ways in which all that is recorded in the Old Testament points to Christ and, and is fulfilled in Christ, and then even points us even forward beyond that. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a profound thing that you and I have the benefit of the New Testament. So, so we have both of these testimonies, right? But I do think it is essential that we appreciate the fact that when it, when it came to giving an attestation to this message, they reached back to something that had already been written. I, I mean, it's not, it's not like Peter was going to say, and by the way, I just wrote this book about it. That's what we do today, right? 
Something amazing happens, the person something amazing to happen, they write a book about it, and then you want to know the facts about it, what are you supposed to do? Go to the book that the guy that it happened to wrote. That's not what these guys do. I mean, eventually, yes, there are books that they author, but what is it that they go to to affirm the message, the Old Testament? Some of you may know where I'm about to go here. Give me just a minute. Because there is a figure in particular that I feel like I need to name by name. Some of you love it when I do this. Others don't. Some of you may be thinking, is he going to name me? No, no, I'm not going to name you. But I have mentioned the name Andy Stanley before, the son of Charles Stanley, uh, a man who seems to have no limitations to his ability to degrade the Bible and the message of the gospel. And here's how he has done this. And this, to me, is what is so sad about what he's done, that this has been going on for a couple of years. Like a couple of years ago, he made this statement. This was an entire series of messages about how we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Well, I can tell you two disciples who were really pretty glad Jesus didn't do that. What do you mean unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament? How can I unhitch myself from that which testifies to the gospel? No, no, we, we need to make sure that we are a people who are firmly committed to the entirety of God's revelation given to us, to the fullness of that which is inerrant and infallible. God has attested to the message of the gospel. And let's make this plain. This is the fundamental message. We've got to get this message right. I know we live in a day that loves to talk about people's stories. Narrative seems to carry the most weight in our culture, but I'm here to tell you what is imperative is that as God's people, we continue to communicate the propositional truths of the gospel. These things are true. They are right. They are real. They are grounded in an inerrant and infallible word. People want to talk about their story, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But to quote Bill Klingenstein from just a couple of months ago, your story is not the gospel. The gospel is Christ crucified and resurrected. Your story is how the gospel saves you. Church, we cannot get these things confused. The people don't just need to hear my story. They need to hear chapter 15, verse 3. Jesus died for our sins, according to the Scripture, was buried and was raised from the dead, according to the Scripture. This truth is what the world needs today. And so we need to be careful we're doing that well. Divinely attested message. All right, let's go on to number three. Finally, quasi-quickly. All right, number three, it is a personally experienced message. Now, here's what I want to do. I, I, I don't want it to make it sound like your story doesn't matter at all, because it does. Because notice what he goes on to say. After establishing the very real propositional truth of the gospel, he then goes on to say in verse 5, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. And in other words, now Paul says, by the way, that whole thing, Jesus Christ crucified, raised from the dead, Old Testament clearly given to us in Scripture. You, you can take it to the bank. It's true because God has said it. All right, it's been done, divinely attested. But let me give you one other bit of information. There's a lot of folk that saw him raised from the dead. 
not like a ghostly apparition, not, not like a, 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 you know, a, a whiff of fog flying by, not, not, a, not a, you know, a brief glimpse uh, out of the corner of their eye. These, these people touched him. They ate with him. Now, granted, there was one story where he walked through a wall, all right? So that's pretty impressive, okay? But nonetheless, he did very real things. And do you know how long he did this for? Forty days. For 40 days, he appeared to Peter. He appeared to the other apostles. And just in case somebody out there were to think, oh, the apostles, of course he's going to quote the apostles. He has to say the apostles, right? They have to say Peter. Of course, Peter's going to agree with Paul. So then he adds, there's about 500 other eyewitnesses that saw him at the same time. Some of them are dead, but most of them are not. So, if you just want to skip your pretty little self right on down to Jerusalem, you can go ask them. You can go find out for yourself. They're there. They saw it. By the way, you you want to know how real this thing was? A half-brother of Jesus who was there during the Gospels, who probably would have committed him if that thing had been an option, this same brother also saw Jesus and believed. And by the way, he then appeared to the apostles again. And then he even adds, and I saw him. I did too. That this is not, again, this is not something that just had this, you know, the, this brief eyewitness account that's ambiguous and uncertain. What was it that Jesus did for 40 days? He made appearance after appearance after appearance. And this, by the way, I have every confidence, is not the total of all the appearances that Jesus would have made. John in his gospel even tells us, we can't write down all the stories of Jesus. We don't have enough books in the world to do that. I'm confident there were plenty of more appearances of Christ. This is not, again, some kind of event that happened way off in the backwoods somewhere and you come out of the woods and say, oh, it happened. Well, who saw it? Well, nobody else saw it. I did, though. That's not what this is. I saw it. He saw it. They saw it. They're still alive. Go ask them. By the way, you got me right in front of you. I saw them too. Now, Paul comes back around and gives us this as an affirmation of the message personally experienced. People personally encountered the risen Lord. And this had a profound effect, then I think, on the spreading of the gospel, the preaching of the message. This was was something that, that had these clear points of affirmation. Again, I I know believing that somebody came back from the dead. It's hard to believe. Doesn't happen all the time. But it did happen once 2,000 years ago. This is the message, and we can trust it. It's been carefully communicated. And now for nearly 2,000 years, faithful churches have been carefully communicating the exact same gospel message. Why are we able to do that? Well, because it's found in the Word, because it's given to us. It's attested in the Word. We have a sure and certain truth. Then on top of that, what else do we cling to? He saved my life. And this is what is amazing now about this gospel. No one here has seen the risen Lord. But those who are believers in Jesus Christ have been forever changed by Him. And so as we conclude, there's one other little bit just to emphasize. And it's kind of of was a nagging thought in my mind as I was thinking about this message, been preparing this message. Paul repeating himself. 
saying the same thing again and again and again, apparently. Something they already knew. He's not saying, I'm preaching this to you again because uh, the first time it seemed like maybe you didn't get it, all right? So I'm going to slow down. That's not what he said. He said, you received it. Why is he preaching this to them again? Again, he's not giving them an addition to the gospel. There's nothing new about this gospel. It is the same old story. And here's some reasons why I think that would be the case. First, this is, of course, the heart and soul of God's people. The message of Christ crucified, resurrected according to the scriptures. To get this wrong is to get everything wrong. Everything. If we don't get this right, none of it's right. If we don't get this right, we're just a social club. And there's a lot of churches that have turned into nothing more than social clubs. Now, to, to miss this is to miss everything. We must be vigilant about our commitment to the gospel. Not only do we need to be faithful to preach it, but we need to be faithful to hear it. You and I never get over the need of the gospel. I don't mean we need to be saved again, but we never get over the need of needing the gospel. I love how Martin Luther put it in his commentary on Galatians. He said this about the re-preaching again and again of the gospel. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know the gospel well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. Now, I, I, get, I know, that's harsh for Easter. All right, I get it, okay. But Luther said it. I didn't. Okay, but that, I mean, if you know anything about him, that's kind of Luther. But, but he is pressing this point. You and I continually need to be reminded of these simple truths. I would also contend that maybe Paul is being evangelistic. This letter would have been read at the church in Corinth. It's been years since Paul had been at Corinth. There are inevitably new people at Corinth. There may even be people attending, coming apart, being a part of the congregation for the first time. So Paul is taking an opportunity to preach the gospel again, to once again emphasize that the means by which we are saved is the gospel, the gospel of Christ crucified and resurrected. It is the power of God unto salvation. But I think there's one other element, and this is, this is where we will conclude. This just reminds us that the gospel doesn't change. It doesn't matter what technological advancement, medical advancement, economic advancement. It doesn't ma matter if there's archaeological discoveries. It doesn't matter if there are scientific discoveries. Nothing changes the gospel. There never comes a day where we will ever be able to say, oh, now that we know this, we know that this about Christ is not true. That'll never happen. The gospel is the same because it is the same God working through the same Savior, empowered by the same spirit, the gospel does not change. It is the same truth and will remain the same truth. It changes people of all ages, all cultures, over all periods of time. No different setting, no different context ever requires us to massage or change or tweak the gospel message. It is the same. Everybody, 
We are all dead in our trespasses and sin. We all need a Savior. And that grace comes to us only in a crucified and resurrected Lord. And we always need to be hearing that message. And so on this day, church, we rejoice in the message of the gospel, the hope of Christ crucified and resurrected. And we look then, church, with an eye toward the sky. Because if this is true, guess what else is true? That the day is coming when that same Savior who was raised from the dead and who ascended into heaven promised one day I'm going to descend. I'm going to come back not as a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, but as a Savior wrapped in the glory of heaven itself. And when I come, a trumpet will sound. And when that trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. The resurrection matters, not only because it's the heart of the gospel, but because it's the heart of your hope. Your days are not limited to life on this earth. In fact, your best and greatest days are yet to come, and they will come when our Savior returns and takes us to glory forever. That's why this message matters. We've got to get it right. And so I would ask you here today, have you believed on this Savior? To those who are here and say you are not a believer in Christ, I would implore you to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in Him and Him alone for salvation. To God's people who are here, I would encourage you to once again glory in the cross and the resurrection, not for your own glory, the glory that belongs to the Lord and His goodness expressed in a work that was done for you so that you might become the righteousness of God and enjoy eternal life. And all of this is possible because our Savior rose from the dead and he's still alive. So church, let's stand. And we're, after I pray, we're going to sing. And we're going to sing because he lives. This is what drives us, our hope and our confidence in the days to come. Father God, we do thank you for the gathering of your people. We're grateful for this Lord's Day, for this resurrection celebration, to be reminded of simple yet profound truths, truths perhaps we have heard for many, many years, yet still cause our hearts to sing with the hope of a Savior. We thank you for Christ crucified and resurrected. May we live then as a resurrected people, being given spiritual life, who one day then will enjoy the fullness of a resurrected life in body and in soul. And may we live then faithfully in a world that desperately needs to hear this message of the gospel. Grant us compassion and grant us boldness and courage as we preach the hope of Christ crucified, resurrected, according to the scriptures. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.